0: We'll hear argument first this morning in number 92-757, Barbara Landgroff versus USI Film Products, and 92-938, Maurice Rivers and Robert Davison versus Roadway Express. Mr. Schnapper. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the
1: Court, the question here is whether Sections 101 and 102 of the 1991 Civil Rights Act apply to the claims in these cases both of which arose prior to November 21, 1991, the effective date of the Civil Rights Act. With regard to Rivers, the practical question is whether in the future this and other Section 1981 cases, which arose prior to November 1991, will be governed by Section 101 of the 91 Act or by this Court's 1989 decision in Patterson, which the Civil Rights Act overturned. With regard to Landgraf, the practical... I, question
2: I, I, I don't think that the civil rights overturned our decision. It simply recognized that Congress had passed a statute which was broken and that it ought to be fixed. It's it's a very fundamental distinction.
1: Well, I'll accept your characterization of it. Um, With regard to Landgraf, the practical question is whether plaintiffs who are injured by intentional acts of discrimination occurring prior to November 1991 can obtain the additional remedies provided by Section 102. Uh, If Section 102 is not available, then Petitioner Landgraf, uh, who has established that she was the victim of intentional discrimination, uh, will have no remedy whatsoever. There are two distinct reasons why we maintain that Section 101
0: and 102... One of the two cases, Mr. Schnapper, that the right to jury trial is involved, isn't it? If if Section 102 applies, then either party could
1: request a jury trial. That's right. And and so that's raised in the Landgraf case.
0: In Landgraf.
3: that, that right to jury trial is inseparable from the
1: substantive right to damages. That's right. That's right. It's only if there's a right to damages that the right to jury trial uh, is available to either side. Um, there are two distinct... That, and
4: on that point, if the plaintiff prevailed, there would have to be an entire new trial because the defendant also would have a right to jury trial. Is that not so?
1: We don't believe so, Your Honor. Um, the, uh, the The... The bench trial that was conducted prior to the adoption of the Civil Rights Act um, established liability, and we believe that, under the reasoning of this court's decision in Parklane Hosiery, that a by judgment precludes How either side. How could
4: it be stopped when the defendant succeeded, won the judgment? You can't appeal from an adverse portion of an opinion if the judgment is in your favour. Defendant, in that case, not being in a position to appeal the judgment in defendant's favour then, in fairness, must be able to have a whole new trial.
1: Uh, Your Honor, in the Landgraf case, the judgment was in the plaintiff's favor. The district judge found that there, had, that there was a, a pattern of sexual harassment, and the defendant could have cross-appealed on that, that was issue.
4: Not the, what was the ultimate judgment in the district court? I do not think there was a judgment entered for the plaintiff, was there?
1: The, there, wasn't, uh, there wasn't judgment entered for the plaintiff. The court found there had been a violation of the law.
4: I yeah, want appeals from a judgment, not from an opinion. Not from a finding. You can't appeal, if you win the judgment, as far as I understand it, you can't appeal from an adverse finding made along the way. The judgment winner can't appeal even though there was a finding, an intermediate finding against the judgment winner. Isn't that correct? You appeal from a judgment, not from an opinion, not from a finding.
1: I believe, Your Honor, that that when we were in the Court of Appeals arguing that even prior to the Civil Rights Act, we were entitled to greater relief, uh, the defendants could have argued that we were not entitled to any relief because the decision as to liability was was incorrect. Um, and in any
0: event, that issue could, could be addressed on remand. Um, it's
4: it's, it's point. a fairly
0: important issue. Uh, it seems to me you wouldn't have to come down with an all-or-nothing answer here that uh, the, uh, the act, based on when the... Wrong, alleged wrongs occurred but as at least to the jury trial and damages remedy if the trial had already taken place that would be a more appropriate place to divide the effectiveness
1: we view the matter differently uh, mr chief justice our view is that as long as the question of what the remedy should be was in dispute which it was at the time the act uh, was adopted that the plaintiff ought to be able to invoke the statute
0: What if Congress had done just the opposite of what it did here? Supposing before the uh, most recent act there had been a right to jury trial and afterwards the Congress says, no, there's no longer a jury trial, and the the plaintiff had already had a jury trial in which she'd been awarded damages, would you say then that under the the new act would apply and the jury trial would be canceled out?
1: No, no. Our our view is that so long as the right manner of trial the random trial was correct under the law as it stood at the time of the trial, that that, that, isn't, that, that method of trying a case doesn't, isn't reopened. I mean, it, it, this cuts both ways. In, in the land grab case, the, the uh, petitioner lost on some issues and won on others. We're not here claiming that we're entitled to go back and retry the issues we lost.
0: But you are claiming you should go back and be able to have a jury trial. Are you? Oh, we're claiming we have a right to go back and, and seek
1: additional relief in the form of damages. Uh, If we are allowed to do that, either party could then ask for a jury trial, but it would all... Which they would not
0: have done before the act was amended.
1: Right, but the issue to be tried on remand uh, is not going to be liability, it's going to be damages, which is an issue that was not tried at all the first time around. You don't
4: recognize that a defendant would have an argument, well, I'm entitled to a jury trial, too, and it isn't often that you would bifurcate liability and damages because the two are often intertwined.
1: Well, it it has, however, happened. This is, in effect, what happened in Park Lane Hosiery, where there was one proceeding properly before a judge in which liability was established, and then subsequent proceedings invoked that judgment.
4: Well, there was no judgment. There was never a judgment for the plaintiff in this case. The Court of Appeals affirmed a district court judgment for the defendant, and that's quite different from what was involved in Park Lane.
1: Well, we, we view the matter differently,
4: do you have any authority for a, a, an appeal from a favorable decision where a party is allowed to appeal from a favorable decision?
1: No, I'm, I'm not sure whether this precise circumstance has arisen. Uh, and it,
4: I, I don't want to sidetrack you on that anymore, but I'm not, I'm not aware of any such authority.
1: Let me also say that it's not necessary... Uh, in in this case, in this present posture, for this court to address that collateral judgment by estoppel issue, we think that could be dealt with on remand. The the broader question here is whether the the statute can be invoked at all. Um, I think that's the issue which requires resolution here. Um, The linchpin of our argument regarding the structure and language of the statute is the fact that there are two expressly prospective provisions in the Act, Section 109C, with regard to extraterritoriality, provides that that section will not apply to conduct occurring prior to the effective date of the statute. If Petitioner Landgraf had worked for USI in Mexico, she could not invoke the statute. Uh, Section 109C would apply. Uh, But in this instance, a respondent USI can't invoke Section 109C because the petitioner worked in a plant in Texas. Similarly, there is a, a second expressly prospective provision in the statute, Section 402B, which expressly exempts from any application of the act any pre-existing case that meets three requirements. It was filed before 1975, that the first decision in the case happened after March of 1983, and then it's a disparate impact case.
2: Do you agree that that uh, applies to, so far as you know, to only one uh, uh, possible uh, party?
1: That, that was the understanding of Congress, and, and that's our understanding.
2: Um,
1: In this this case, uh, Rivers and Landgraf's case, meet the second requirement of Section 402B, but don't meet the first or the third requirement. Um, Because neither of the expressly prospective (coughs) provisions are available to respondents, this case is governed by Section 402A. It's our contention that Section 109C and 402B are dispositive of the meaning of Section 402A. There are a number of different well-established rules of construction which we think here. Um, well,
5: Section 402A doesn't—is not clear, is it, in, in telling us whether it can be retroactively applied? I mean, theoretically, the statute well, uh, could become effective on the date of its passage but not be retroactive under that language.
1: Our, our, if, if all we had here was the language take effect upon an acronym, we would not have yeah. a strong argument. But, but we have other provisions in the statute, and here is... You an,
5: rely on these two, uh, 109C and 402B exceptions. Well, we also... The meaning of 402A.
1: Yes, but we also rely on the language of section 402A, which begins, except as otherwise specifically provided. The only plausible reference of, of, of that clause, we think, is section 402B and 109C. Now, if that's the reference... The word, the ordinary meaning of the phrase except as otherwise provided is that 402A is different than those exceptions. So so we do rely in part on the language of section 402A. Um, As I was saying, there are a number of uh, well established rules of construction which we contend apply here. Uh, The the rule that expressio unius est exclusio alterius, uh, the the rule in Rossello. Um, that, where a provision such as 109C is in one section of a statute but not another, that that decision was deliberate. Uh, we've noted in our arguments that um, if the view of a respondent were accepted, if 402A means that the statute is applicable to any pre existing claim, then Section 402B would be entirely redundant, as would Section 109C. The construction which we advance uh, has the effect of giving independent significance and force to all provisions of the statute.
4: There is some redundancy in this uh, in this Act 110B says exactly the same thing as 402A, so it isn't the most carefully drafted piece of legislation. There's no reason to have this, the same sentence in 110B as there is in 402A, is it? We agree,
1: Your Honor. The, the, the maxim is that where it's possible to avoid redundancy, the court should interpret the Act to do so. It's not possible with regard to Section 110. It, is, it reads exactly the same as 4. 402a, But it is possible to construe 402A in a manner which doesn't render 402B and 109C redundant. Um,
3: Mr. Schnapper, there, you know, there are a lot of maxims of construction, and it's not unusual for the maxims to cut against one another. And, and in those cases, I guess you have to decide uh, uh, which one is stronger. Now, I, I had thought that we have a very strong rule. I'm not even sure it's, it's as low a level as a maximum of construction, but a rule that retroactivity is disfavored. I mean, we've had some state constitutions that specifically prohibit retroactive legislation. Uh, It's a long tradition of the common law. Uh, Why shouldn't we say, well, in an ordinary case, uh, these minor indications of uh, uh, meaning would suffice, but they don't suffice to... uh, overcome the strong presumption against retroactive legislation.
1: You have to say it clearly. You wouldn't say this is clear, would you? Well, I I wouldn't. Well, I would, Your Honor. This this, this structural argument we advance here is the same as the argument the court accepted um, in Pennsylvania versus Union Gas, that where there were exceptions in that case specifically providing that states weren't liable for certain things, the court concluded that that, was, that met the extraordinarily stringent requirement of the 11th Amendment. Um, so I, I think without resolving the apparent tension between Bowen and Bradley, it would be possible to resolve this case. But I'd like to turn to, to the to Bowen and Bradley issue, if I might. Um, the, uh, as, as the court is undoubtedly aware, there are, and as you rightly pointed out, there are a number of seemingly contradictory presumptions out there, the Bowen line of cases uh, and the Bradley line of cases. Um, the, uh, it, it's our contention that those lines of decisions can be reconciled, and indeed they are complementary. Um, we believe that, that, that these are two sides of the same coin because these rules have traditionally been applied to different categories of statutes, um, and so understood that the Bowen and Bradley rules um, can be reconciled. The, and I refer here now not only to the decisions of this Court, but to the decisions of the courts in the states to which you refer, which have constitutional prohibitions against retroactivity.
3: Before you get into what you say, that have traditionally been applied, where, where was the Bradley rule traditionally applied before Bradley? Well, expressed, was it ever expressed before Bradley?
1: Do you have a case that, that, that expressed well, we've Bradley before Bradley? we listed a, a number of cases. The one I think that would particularly apt here is, is Sturgis, Your Honor, um, in which the... Uh, in which the court was called upon to apply one of those very constitutional prohibitions against retroactive uh, legislation and concluded that it didn't apply to legislation with regard to uh, remedies and procedures. Um uh, Honor, if I might, I, I think I'd best reserve the balance of my time.
0: Very well, Mr. Schnapper. Uh, General Days, we'll hear from you.
6: Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin my argument by responding to the point that Justice Ginsburg made uh, with respect to the right to a jury trial. Uh, As we've set out at note 14 of our brief uh, on pages 24 and 25, we think that in a situation where there has not been a finding of liability uh, for a plaintiff, uh, the application of this new rule would require a remand and an entire trial, jury trial, on that issue, not merely on the question of damages.
4: The question uh, with Mr. Schnapper was over whether there was a finding. There was no judgment for the plaintiff. That, that is correct. There was affirmed a judgment for the defendant. That is correct. And my understanding is that winners can't appeal from a favorable judgment.
6: That's correct. And, and what we've offered in our brief is a variety of alternatives that the court might consider in terms of how a trial on remand might be handled by the the lower court. I wanted to pick up on my colleague Mr. Schnapper's argument uh, about the Bradley-Bennett-Bowen rule uh, that he began to discuss. As he indicated, uh, we have argued in our brief that the language structure Analysis that uh, he provided to the court provides a reasonable inference that Congress intended for the Act, with the exception of 402B and 109C, to apply to pending cases. But to the extent that uh, the court uh, finds difficulty with that, we think that there is one inference that certainly can be drawn from that language and structure analysis. And that is that Congress intended that at least some of the provisions of the 1991 Act would have applicability to pending cases. In other words, the language points in the direction of some applicability to pending cases. What that directive (laughs) provides is an invitation for courts to evaluate the remaining provisions of the Act against a backdrop of jurisprudence having to do with default rules in those instances where it is not clear whether certain provisions should be applied to pending cases or not to pending cases. So we think that the language structure argument uh, and the default rule analysis are mutually reinforcing.
2: How would you apply that rule, Mr. Dayes, in the hypothetical case, not this statute, uh, where the jury trial provisions are not linked to the damages? Suppose you have a a trial in which the, uh, the damages are assessed by the court, um, and then, uh, pending appeal, the jury trial provision is, is enacted. Uh, how, how would you apply your rule in that case? Uh, would the plaintiff be entitled to a reversal for a, a, a new trial before a jury?
6: We would regard the the right to a jury trial as a procedural right, uh, and Uh, Under normal circumstances, that would require uh, a a jury trial. But we would also suggest, as we said in our brief, that where a trial has occurred and it is an error-free trial, even without a jury, there would be no requirement for a a trial before a jury uh, to the extent that the new rule applied.
3: Why do you have to make that exception? Isn't it a more sensible way to... uh simply ask the question that once you've decided that you have a general principle against retroactivity, you still have to ask yourself, what is the, what is the baseline for retroactivity? Uh, what is the event that determines whether it's being retroactive or not? And it's not being retroactive with respect to most procedural rules, simply because the, the event is the trial. And therefore, any trial that occurs after the legislation uses the new procedure. That's not, that's not rendering it retroactive at all. Whereas most substantive rules, including, including the amount of damages, uh, the, the baseline, the, the point of reference is not the trial, but rather the, the action which is being punished by or, 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 or compensated by that uh, uh, damages. Uh,
6: Justice Scalia, that's certainly one way of approaching it, but I don't believe that that provides any greater certainty than the rule that we're suggesting, namely that the court approach the issue by looking at substantive changes on the one hand or procedural or remedial on the other. Well,
3: I wouldn't have to make an, ar- an arbitrary exception to that principle as you have had to make it for your substantive procedural distinction. You make a substantive procedural distinction, but then you say, well, of course, where the trial has already occurred, well, why make that exception?
5: Mr. Days, yes. maybe we should be looking to the kinds of principles that govern the Erie Doctrine or the Rules Enabling Act to see uh, what types of things could be immediately applied and what couldn't. Does that make some sense?
6: Yes, it does. Uh, certainly, the, the approach that we suggest, namely the substantive on the one hand and procedural remedial on the other, uh, is a dichotomy that's very familiar to the courts across the face of, Mr. Day, of law. in
4: that connection, on the substance-procedure divide, whether it's in the Erie context or the choice of law context, whether it's vertical or horizontal, damages, as far as I know, are always put on the substantive side of the line, mode of trial on the procedural side. But you, you are saying that these two travel together, so that the right to damages for the first time for money other than back pay, you are classifying as remedial, non-substantive, and yet in in uh, the choice of law context, classically damages are substantive. Uh,
6: I, our position is that, that that is remedial, that what uh, the statute... Including punitives. I think the situation is more problematic with respect to punitives. Do you
4: have any authority even for compensatory damages being something that one would class as not substantive?
6: Uh, Yes, there are decisions in the lower court uh, that have uh, allowed double damages uh, in situations where there was a change in the law, uh, even though uh, uh, that was not the rule prior to the, the change in law. I don't have that specific citation, but there is a Second Circuit case in which that was done in a securities Matter.
3: Why is that any different from increasing the criminal penalty for, a, for, for an action that's already criminal? Would, would, would you say that that's retroactive?
6: The, the ex post facto law would come into effect when well, we're why? talking about because the criminal it's Because it's retroactive.
3: Because it's retroactive. But you say it somehow is not retroactive in civil cases, even though it obviously is in criminal.
6: Well, Justice Scalia, I think we disagree as to what the rule is. You're asserting that the rule is against retroactivity. Uh, that's what the ex post facto law is directed But I'm talking about in the civil context, and I think that we've shown in our briefs, and the briefs of petitioner, that the rule has really been one that makes that distinction between substance on the one hand and procedure and remedy on the other.
4: Mr. Days, and- I haven't seen any case, at least in this court, where an augmentation of the penalty, of, of the damages, I withdraw the word penalty, but where an increase in available damages has been applied retroactively. And, and you told me there is a Second Circuit case in a securities matter. But is there any case in this Court where a statute augmenting a monetary toll was applied retroactively to pre-enactment conduct?
6: Uh, no, no, Your Honor. No, Justice Ginsburg. I'm not aware of a case in this Court. Uh, but I think that there are a number of cases that make the distinction between uh, ousting someone of vested rights or imposing new obligations without uh, notice or an opportunity to be heard, but they have not focused on damages as such, uh, where new remedies are provided for old wrongs. Uh, we, we read the law as saying that uh, that is not uh, a substantive change
2: and why is it why punitive damage is not a new remedy for an old wrong?
6: We think that punitive damages are more difficult because Uh, This Court has pointed out in TXO, for example, in Justice Stevens' opinion, that uh, there are uh, requirements of notice that ought to be provided to a person before that person is subjected to punitive damages. We don't think that the same requirement uh, is is necessary under these circumstances, Uh, that is, with respect to compensatory damages. The... Thank you.
0: Thank you, General Days. Uh, Mr. Nager, we'll hear from you.
7: Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case would no doubt be easier if, in the 1991 Civil Rights Act, Congress had directly and specifically addressed the question of whether or not Sections 101 and 102 of the Civil Rights Act were to be applied retroactively to conduct that occurred five years before the enactment of the statute.
3: I think it slipped their mind. (laughs)
7: It was a heavily debated issue, no doubt. And, uh but they didn't specifically address it. And the question for this court is what rule of construction applies in a case where Congress is not specifically um, addressed Mr. Oh, the- Nager,
5: according to the Ninth Circuit, in uh, its opinion in uh is it Reynolds versus Martin? Yes. Um The panel there took the position that Congress had not only addressed it, that the language is clear, and when you look at the (coughs) provisions uh, relied upon by Mr. Schnapper, that uh, it becomes a plain language case.
7: That that is what the court in Reynolds held, and of course it was wrong. And the the reason it was wrong is because it started in the wrong place. This, This court has made clear for over 200 years that the starting point in a case involving a question of retroactivity, is a presumption. It's a presumption that courts should. Well, do, we, do we get to presumptions before we uh, get beyond the, uh, the the question of plain language? Yes, Justice Souter. I, I think we do. I, ever since Schooner Peggy, the court has instructed that courts should struggle hard to avoid retroactive interpretations of the law that the presumption of prospectivity protects fundamental values of justice and limited uh, government through checks and balances that are fundamental to this nation's legal tradition and to its constitutional structure. in,
2: In our struggle, how do we read out the negative implication of 109C?
7: I don't think it's a question of reading it out, Justice Souter. There's no doubt that there is a plausible inference from those sections that one plausible construction of 402A is that Congress intended it to apply some of the provisions of the Civil Rights Act retroactively. But it's not the only conceivable inference. And the important question that the court has to ask is what standard of clarity does Congress have to meet in order to compel the courts to do what this court has historically instructed the courts to not do? and not apply a statute retroactively. And this isn't the only presumption that this court has well, of Let that me in, in,
2: in your response, would, would you make it? Maybe you don't want to make this distinction. If you don't, you tell me. But it seems to me that, that it's plausible for you to make a distinction between the implication of 402b, uh, which uh, was apparently, it is agreed, intended to have uh, application only to one possible uh, uh, party in one case, which is, a, you know, I suppose can easily be characterized as just an insurance policy. It's a pretty bizarre example. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, 109C, which doesn't have that, uh, that narrow compass and does not seem to be a bizarre example.
7: I think the justice is correct in that the two provisions are different. Um, 402B is different because it prohibits both a retroactive application of the statute and a prospective application of the statute. 402B says no provision of this act will apply to that case. So for example uh, section 1113 of the statute which provides creates the right for expert fees Uh, in civil rights cases, that provision, absent the way 402b was written, could have applied to the Ward's Cove case on remand with respect to future proceedings. Mm -hmm. And So essentially, 402b is a grandfathering provision. Mm -hmm. Now, again, 109c is different. It just talks about conduct (coughs) occurring after the date of enactment. That's what Section 109c becomes applicable to. But we can't ignore either the presumption that I've discussed or the language of 402a itself. That language is ambiguous. And, uh, well, it's,
2: it, I would grant you that in the absence of C, uh it certainly would be ambiguous, but it is also very clear, as your brother pointed out, that it begins by referring to an exception. Uh, so that it seems to have been drafted with just such an exception as 109C in mind, which seems to
7: me, if anything, to underline the implication of C. It seems to me a strong implication. Well, uh, the justices agreed with me that Section 402B prohibits both retroactive and prospective effects, so to the extent that 402A starts uh, with 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 a qualification on its language, it easily picks up 402B. 2B without making any reference one way or the other as to whether or not 402A is is, uh, only a prospectivity provision or a retroactivity provision as well as a prospectivity provision. The important point here is twofold. One is that the language of 402A is language that Congress has used before, and that language has been routinely construed by the lower courts as allowing only prospective effect for a statute.
5: Well, language that includes except as otherwise provided and then an exception, and what Cases here, do you do you think support you or view that uh, even the natural inference of the statute will be ignored in favor of non-retroactive?
7: Congress in the 1978 amendments to Title VII in the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, which changed the rule of law that this court had announced in Gilbert versus General Electric, in Section A of the 1978 Effective Date section, said, except as provided in subsection B, this act shall take effect on the date of enactment. And in subsection B, said that the 1978 amendments would not become effective as to benefit plans in existence on the date of enactment until after 180 days had passed. So, And the uh, Second Circuit and one other Court of Appeals, which is slipping my mind at this point, but is cited in our brief, construe the 1978 amendments, to only allow prospective application of the statute in all respects, prospective delayed for six months for benefit plans in existence, prospective for conduct occurring after the date of enactment for everything else.
5: And are there cases from this Court that express uh, such a a view?
7: Well, there are cases from this Court dealing, uh, quite frankly, with much more complicated and difficult cases. For example, Schwab versus Doyle uh, is a case in which uh, Congress had passed a transfer tax Uh, under the estate tax laws, saying that in any transaction whatsoever, uh, that a transfer tax would be placed on that transaction so that a person before their death couldn't reduce the size of their estate. And this court said that while certainly it was one plausible construction of that statute to say that it applied to any transaction that an individual had entered into before their death to reduce the size of their estate, this court said it is possible to read the statute to only apply to transactions occurring after the date of enactment and before an individual's death, and that the transfer tax would only apply to those reduction transactions which reduce the size of an individual's estate. Again, the point here is, is that this court has historically said the courts should avoid retroactive applications of the law. There is a historic bias we, against retroactive applications of
4: the law. Um, Mr. Neger, stick closer to home in the, in, in the context of Title VII. I think your answer was that the Pregnancy Discrimination Act cases did not come to this court. It's the uh, court, court of Appeals rulings. That is correct. How about the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 87? Is it, what is the, the language there and what, is the, what views have been expressed by the courts of, on the retroactivity of that act that... Um, let me see, made the law different from what it was when Grove City was decided.
7: I I, I have to to, to concede to the Justice that I haven't read the language of the Civil Rights Rights Restoration Act of 87. I do know the courts of appeals have split on whether or not uh, that statute could be applied uh, to cases uh, that were pending or concerning conduct that arose uh, before the date of the enactment of that that statute. Uh, That would
4: be the closest, I think, wouldn't it, to the Patterson situation?
7: I I think, in fact, the closest to the Patterson situation is the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. The Pregnancy Discrimination Act rejected the uh, uh, rule of law, the interpretation of the pre-existing Title VII scheme announced by this Court in General Electric v. Gilbert. And General Electric v. Gilbert, as the dissent pointed out, rejected the unanimous views of six Court of Appeals and the EEOC's position on whether or not discrimination on the basis of pregnancy constituted discrimination on on the basis of disability. And Congress rejected this Court's interpretation as what the law of this country should be, enacted a new rule of law as provided for a effective date using general language identical to uh, the general effective date language in this statute. And the courts of appeals applying different methodologies to be sure than than methodologies that other courts have applied because there is some confusion, a considerable amount of confusion in the courts of appeals as to what methodology to apply, given the tension that, that exists in this court's cases as Justice Scalia has pointed out in his concurring opinion in the Maggiorno case, but they have all come to the same conclusion, that statutes containing general effective date language, as this statute contains, should be construed to have only prospective effect.
8: Mr. Nager, Nager, aren't there two differences between the problem we have in this case, and I'm not sure the answer, and the problem in the pregnancy discrimination case? First of all, that statute didn't have anything comparable to 402B in it. And secondly, that is, was a one-shot provision. It just had one particular change. Here, there are a host of changes. I think and you suggested that one might read this statute as pre- contemplating retroactivity for some of the changes, such as the expert witness fee provision and such as the attack on consent decrees.
7: I, I'm, I apologize if I, if I have been unclear, Justice Stevens. I, I did not mean to suggest that the Civil Rights Act can in any way properly be construed Uh, as having retroactive applications. Your position is there's no
8: retroactivity, even, for example, on the consent decree provision. That applies only to future consent decrees, not to future tax on previously entered consent decrees.
7: That provision, just like the expert witness fees provision, would apply to any event occurring after the date of enactment, so that if would have to go through the specific provisions of, of Section 108, which is a section dealing with consent decrees. It deals with rights of intervention. Uh, it deals with, with notice uh, issues with respect to consent decrees and the expert witness fee. What example. is your view
8: on whether it would attack, whether it would apply to a future lawsuit challenging the validity of a prior dissent decree on the ground that the litigant didn't have adequate notice? The,
7: the question is with respect to the applicability of Section 108. Yeah. Uh, With respect to that future lawsuit, if the lawsuit was challenging the validity of the consent decree, it would have to meet the requirements of Section 108 in order to be properly filed because Section 108 sets forth the terms upon which such a lawsuit can be
8: filed. The ground of the lawsuit is that at the time the consent decree was entered, the plaintiff had not had adequate notice. That depends on whether... The retroactivity
7: is that it applies to conduct or applies to... And you've picked a tough example, and I'm hesitating, not because I don't know the right methodology to, to apply, but because I can't, I don't have, I'm not All looking I'm at each provision of the is statute.
8: The retroactivity problem is complicated because there are a variety of provisions in here with respect to which one could at least argue that there is some kind of retroactivity?
7: The point is easily conceded by me. This is not an easy question, even if one knows what the right starting point is. Of course,
8: the distinction between
3: substance and procedure is not a very clear one either, is it? That, that is true, Justice Scalia. I
2: appreciate that. Before we get into that, can, would you tell me, uh, what, is, what is the analog in the Pregnancy Discrimination Act that you're, you're uh, arguing from uh, to Section 109C? To my knowledge, there there is no analog. Isn't that the end of the argument,
7: then? No, I I don't think so, because one still has to ask. There's still the language of 402A, and there's still the presumption of prospectivity. My first point uh, to you, Justice Souter, would be that negative inferences are not enough. This court, with regard to both this presumption and a number of... Why not? I mean, you say that. Why not? It seems pretty
2: clear, negative inference.
7: Because this court's decisions have stated over and over and over again... It has to be a clear and unequivocal command for retroactivity that Congress has set forth. Uh, let me use an example. Using, well, is, is the
2: rule that you think we should follow, or, or indeed that perhaps we have followed, is that a negative inference will never suffice?
7: Yes. That is what we would suggest to the court, that Congress has to either express... It certainly his, get you where you want to go. <laughs> that, that's part of my objective. It's not my entire objective. Uh, but let me give, give it a, an, an, an analogy. This court in the Aramco decision a decision which 109, section 109 of the Civil Rights Act changes the rule for for whether or not Title VII applies overseas. In that case, there were negative inferences. Uh, There was an alien exemption in the statute, and from that, one side in that case argued, well, there wouldn't have been any need to put an alien exemption in the statute if the statute didn't apply to U.S. citizens overseas, because the alien exemption says Title VII doesn't apply to, to aliens who are working overseas. But as as Chief Justice Rehnquist pointed out in his opinion for the court and as Justice Scalia pointed out in his concurring opinion, that wasn't enough to overcome the presumption for the extra uh, application uh, uh, against application of U.S. laws overseas. If that presumption isn't overcome by negative inferences, it would certainly seem that this presumption, which certainly forms a, a, the, the most essential starting point for statutory construction. This Court over and over again has said it is the first principle of statutory construction, that negative inferences from 109C would not well, be Mr. enough. And apparently be.
8: Congress thought we'd misapplied the presumptions.
7: And Congress has the right to change the rules, as it clearly has. Uh, this Court's job, of course, is not to in, try to figure out what the current Congress would like the law to be. This, this, jo- this Court is presented with questions of statutory interpretation enacted by prior Congresses. And when this, the, a subsequent Congress enacts a new law, as it clearly has the right to do, it also has the right to specify, if it feels that strongly about it, that it should make the, the effective date retroactive. But it has to say so, and Congress did not hear.
8: Mr. Nager, may I ask you if you think there's any... You, you were asked about the Civil Rights Restoration Act of 1987, uh, the, Grove, the sequel to Grove City. The preamble to that statute says that Congress wanted to restore prior executive interpretation. courts have relied on the restoration. Is there any uh, sense of restoration involved here?
7: I I think not. Uh, In fact, the preliminary bills for the Civil Rights Act of 1991 used identical language to that, to to respond to Supreme Court decisions uh, rendered under Title VII to restore the law to what it was. And if one reads legislative history for whatever it's worth, it does account for some history Uh, And here there was a bitter struggle between the Bush administration um, and the the Democratic leaders in the Senate and in the House over whether or not changes in the law to which they agreed should be characterized as restorative or not. But the, the other point I'd make to you, Justice Stevens, is it's really not a determinative factor what a law is characterized as. The question should be whether or not Congress has commanded that even a restorative law be applied retroactively or not. It, it may be that restorative laws are those kinds of laws in which Congress is going to be more likely on occasion to, make those to, to to meet this Court's test. But there's no reason to lower the standard just because Congress may on those occasions rise up and say, notwithstanding the fundamental principles of justice that underlie the traditional presumption, notwithstanding our historic suspicion of legislatures enacting retroactive rules, that these are occasions on which other values, values uh, that that our society has now come to agreement upon should override the presumption in those particular circumstances. In
4: in the case of the 1987 Act, the returns in the lower court are divided. You conceded that. Yes, Justice. And so would you agree that the answer should be the same in this case as it is in that, at least with respect to Patterson and Grove City? The, The statute itself in 87 said, legislative action is necessary to restore the prior consistent long understanding of what the law was. So in that respect, the two are alike and should logically go the same way. Well, this statute
7: doesn't say that, though. This statute, in fact, does not say it's going to restore the law. It says... In responding to Supreme Court decisions, Congress is going to expand the law. So to the, to the extent we are looking, in fact, at the findings and purposes, provisions of the two statutes, they're different. We should but also... Are saying
4: there's a stronger argument for the retroactivity of the 87 Act and of the 1991
7: Act? Yes, although I'd re- reiterate the point that I made to, to Justice Stevens, that Congress's purpose in restoring the law, while it may provide a suggestion of an intention for retroactivity is not sufficient to create a retroactive effective date. Congress has to say so clearly. And this was the point of the Tenth Circuit, which is the circuit that I do remember under the 87 statute, which rejected the call for retroactivity of that statute, even though it had the benefit of the Second Circuit's views and the Fifth Circuit's views in holding that statute retroactive. The point, again, is, is that we, the starting point for the analysis is we will struggle hard, in the words of the schooner Peggy court, to avoid a retroactive application of the law. That's possible here, and if the justice will allow me, I'll let someone else argue the the conflict in the circuits under under the 87 statute, but my uh, reading of those cases would be that I would be taking the same position if I were arguing uh, that statute, except I can't remember the effective date provisions of that statute uh, well enough.
0: That,
3: that presumption that you're referring to, Mr. Nager, I gather is is not just an interpretive presumption. It's, it's uh, unlike many presumptions, which are just, you know, uh, given no other indication, the normal interpretation is thus and so. This is something of a substantive presumption, isn't it? I,
7: I think so, though I'm hesitant to, in this particular case, to make distinctions between substantive (laughs) presumptions and uh, interpretive presumptions. What is the underlying underlying value that that makes this presumption so important? Isn't it a concept of fair notice? Part of it is the concept of fair notice. What else is it? It it is the the notion that in this country, with our separation of powers between the legislative branch and the judicial branch and the executive branch, that the power to look backwards to interpret pre-existing law and apply pre-existing law lies with the courts, and that the the presumption with respect to the legislative branch is that it looks forward, not backward.
8: There's no question here that if Congress had made its intent clear, it would have had the power to make the statute retroactive.
7: That is true, but I have to put a slight qualification on that, that we find the punitive damages provision uh, troubling. This court in Turner-Elkhorn said that it would have a hard time under the Due Process Clause sustaining a law whose purpose was uh, retroactively to bl- be based on blameworthiness principles or deterrence principles. And, of course, this statute talks about deterrence, but you can't deter something that's already happened. Uh, so, th- th- Mr. Mr. Nagy, you're not arguing, are you, that there would be a separation of powers problem uh, in any application short uh, of attacking a final judgment of a court? No, no, I'm not. I'm trying to answer the question of wh- where does the substance come from that cr- that has led the courts to c- create this this presumption, whether one calls it a substantive canon as opposed to an interpretive canon. And as, as I have read the historical materials, as I have read this court's cases, it's, it has essentially based it on two fundamental parts of the American legal tradition. The one is that Justice Stevens pointed out. People are entitled to fair notice of the law. They're entitled to fair notice of its sanctions and that we will struggle hard to avoid the application to them of any law, of any sanction that they haven't had fair notice of. The second substantive background uh, value that has informed the presumption and given it weight, and Justice Stevens, you refer to this yourself when you're concurring opinion in the Croissant case, is that we have a suspicion in this country that legislatures can be vindictive. They can act for noble purposes, they can act for vindictive purposes, um, but when they're acting, looking backwards, we need to be especially concerned and especially suspicious.
8: I and it's that the same point in my dissent in Daubert against Florida. That, that is, is, is... Against you a little bit. <laughs>
7: that That is true, but the, of course that was a uh, a dissenting opinion. It was not about what informs this presumption <laughs>
4: <laughs> Mr, Mr. Nager, as far as knowing what the law is, I mean the law has been throughout this period thou shalt not discriminate. so the precise the conduct regulating rule, maybe with some exceptions in the one thousand nine hundred and eighty one situation, but certainly in the in the Landgraf case, the rule was there all along thou shalt not discriminate and it's not like a traffic ticket with all apologies to the seventh circuit judge who who said it's like taking a traffic ticket and putting you in prison for life the rule was very strong since the day title seven came in thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of and all that has been done is to make the price tag higher but You're not really suggesting that a defendant would make the calculation that it's okay to discriminate because the only thing I might be liable for is back pay and injunctive relief?
7: I'm not making that argument because I don't think that we need to. I have three points uh, to say to you, Justice Ginsburg. To the extent that it was illegal to discriminate either on the basis of race in the roadway case or to have unlawful sexual harassment in the workplace... The roadway defendants were vindicated repeatedly in the district court as to not having discriminated on the basis of race, as, as the justices pointed out the judgment entered in the Landgraf case? Was a take-nothing judgment against the plaintiff?
4: But there was a finding that the employer's conduct was in violation of the act.
7: The finding was is that there was sexual harassment occurring in the workplace, but there was also another finding that the employer, USI Film Products, had redressed that situation, so that, in fact, the remedy that the 1964 Congress wanted happened. The 1964 Congress, in contrast to the 1991 Congress, wanted to encourage p- employers to fix the situations themselves. And this employer did that, maybe not as fast as we would have liked, and maybe the next time it'll do it better. And one of the, uh, n- no doubt one of the effects of the 1991 statute, because I now have clients calling me, asking me to put on sexual harassment training seminars that weren't, didn't, we didn't used to put on for our clients, is for them to increase their training efforts, increase their monitoring efforts, increase their education efforts, so that they can train their employees both not to to discriminate on the basis of race or sex, not to uh, uh, have sexual harassment in workforces, to respond effectively uh, to employee complaints, but please do remember that the employers in this case, uh, A, have not been adjudicated of violating any law, discriminating uh, unlawfully, and in fact, it's always, not always, but in these two cases, as it is in many cases, these are cases in which the employers are simply being held vicariously liable. And there's no doubt that the 1964 Congress understood and the 1991 Congress understood that the level of the sanctions that are attached to the law inform the judgments made by American employers as to how much money to put into the investment to ensure that other people don't discriminate Discrimination is wrong. It's illegal. When it's found to have occurred, as it it has not been, there's no judgment finding any discrimination in either of these cases. There are factual findings in the Landgraf case. I concede that sexual harassment existed in the workplace, but there's also a finding in the district court opinion affirmed by the Court of Appeals that the human resources manager responded to that situation and fixed it. Uh, I'd like one, one final point to make to the court. This was a political compromise, as Justice Scalia pointed out. This was not a, an issue that slipped through. This was vigorously debated. And there wouldn't have been a Civil Rights Act but for the fact that Senator Danforth and Senator Redmond and Senator Domenici and six other moderate Republicans said, if we're going to have a civil rights bill, people are going to have to make some compromises. And they forged a compromise And they ended up with ambiguous statutory language and they ended up stitching together a few bills that, as Justice Ginsburg has pointed out, contain redundancies that we can't get out of the statute any way we read it, no matter what presumptions we apply. And we had a lot of self-serving floor statements. What Congress needs from this court is clear direction. What is the role that the court is going to apply when Congress doesn't say whether or not it intends retroactive effect of the law? Congress needs a rule that it can understand, that's simple to apply, and so do the lower courts. They're in terrible confusion. And if respect for the compromise that was struck in 1991...
8: But Mr. Negre, it is perfectly clear, isn't it, that if they had made their intent perfectly clear, we would have followed it. So they have a clear rule already. That's true, but there's also... If we'd, if we'd said in different language, do you think they still might just compromise this way?
7: J- Justice Stevens, there are clearly uh, floor statements uh, from people on both sides citing different decisions coming out of this court to try to, to create a, 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 essentially a manipulated record for the lower but court... But each group. side
8: well knew that if they put in language as they had in the 1990 statute, there wouldn't have been much of a problem.
7: That, that's true.
3: But well, I guess it's clear that if they make it clear, we will follow it.
8: But it isn't clear that if
3: they don't make it clear, we won't follow it.
7: That's true, too.
3: And that's what the uh, what, what the uh, uh, one-upsmanship was about. In the, in that, that's correct, Justice
7: Scalia. Yeah. Unless the Court has further questions, I have nothing further.
0: Thank you, Mr. Nager. Uh, Mr. Schnapper, you have five minutes remaining.
1: Um it please the Court? I'd like to first uh, just clarify one question about the, the, the record in Landgraf. Mr. Nager was correct when he stated that the uh, district court found that the, the plant personnel manager had corrected uh, and addressed the problem. Uh, however, the record also demonstrates in the court found that that happened only after more than a year of particularly egregious harassment, during which time the victim repeatedly went to her supervisor, who responded to her that she was a tattletale, uh, and she was thereafter threatened uh, on a number of occasions for having complained. So this is not a situation which was promptly and happily resolved. Secondly, with regard to Justice Stevens' question about whether Congress understood that it was restoring the law to where the lower courts at least had understood it was, in Appendix F to our reply brief, we list 85 statements by members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, using the word restore or similar language to describe what the statute did. Does
4: that, does that go for all the decisions? This one concentrates on Patterson, but what about Shaw against Library of Congress? Well, that's, in that's, general,
1: those, dis, those cases, those, those remarks don't distinguish among them. Some are specifically about Patterson or other cases, but generally they're about... So you referring would be the making stash.
4: the same argument if the, this particular problem before us today was the Shaw yes. problem, even though that involves a, the, another, yet another maxim about <laughs> sovereign immunity and waivers uh, yes. strictly construed? Yes. Um, I would So the solicitor general, I believe, had had a caveat about about that. He did. You don't share that.
1: We do not. Um, the uh, I, I'd remind the court in this. I'd add to the list of battling presumptions here. Uh, another one uh, in this court's recent decision in Franklin versus Gwinnett County, and it's one of those clear statement rules that that uh, crop up repeatedly. We presume the availability of all presume the availability of all appropriate remedies unless Congress has expressly Indicated otherwise. Well, here we are, we're seeking the remedy of damages. Seems to me that is, that's a presumption that applies here as well. We, we disagree with respondent about what the, the reach and the rationale of the presumption referred to by Justice Klee is. Our view is the same advanced by Mr. Justice Stevens, that it's to protect good faith reliance interests. The, uh, respondents at page four of, excuse me, respondents in, in Roadway, in page four of their brief, Uh, referring to the monetary relief that might be available, say that uh, citizens have a right to have not only warning of what the law prohibits, uh, but also its it's sanctions, so that they can avoid those sanctions if they wish. As Justice Ginsburg pointed out, compliance with Title VII was not optional. This isn't a licensing fee that says you can violate if you're willing to pay the cost.
3: Well, but but especially when you're dealing with a statute that imposes vicarious liability. That is to say, we're not talking about... Employers who personally discriminate. But the issue is, how much effort must they expend to be sure that none of their employees is guilty of such discrimination? Obviously, how much effort the, the Republic expects from them depends to some extent upon the sanctions that the, Repub- that the Republic is imposing for their failure to, to shape up. Don't you think that, there's, there's a, uh, that it's an intelligent decision for a businessman to make?
1: With, with all deference, Your Honor, we don't believe that that is what ordinarily goes on in the business community. Most employers, uh, most businessmen, with regard to any statutes, take those statutes very seriously and comply with them and don't make calculations about whether it's going to be a $20,000 verdict or a $30,000 verdict.
2: Um, do you, uh, you go the, the whole hog with your argument and say that also applies to the new punitive damage provision?
1: We do. I, I, we remind the Court that the punitive damages are capped and capped in such a way that if there's a large compensatory award, there the won't 300, be
2: 300000
1: it depends on the size of the employer. Hmm. And Punitive damages, I, I, I would you know, ra- raise somewhat different questions. Um, but you'd but come to the same conclusion. W- yes, because we don't, we don't think employers make those kinds of, of, of distinctions. And the defense well, in then, this and case would, was not oh, it
8: would follow that punitive damages uh, are, are serving a purpose.
1: No, Your Honor. One of the purposes of punitive damages referred to in the legislative history uh, was to... Was The the concept noted in this court's decision in Newman v. Piggy Park to provide encouragement uh, for private parties to enforce the law uh, by maintaining these lawsuits. That
0: purpose, obviously, is served here. You think—never mind. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Schnapper. The case is submitted.